and welcome to Joe's Boys. This is a podcast for little women, little men, and everyone in between. I'm your host, Peyton Thomas. I'm the author of the novel Both Sides Now. I'm also a writer for publications like Vanity Fair and the New York Times. And I'm here today with my very special guest and fellow 19th century history enthusiast, Michael Leali. Michael is a writer and educator. He received his MFA from the Vermont College of Fine Arts, and he is the author of the debut middle grade novel, The Civil War of Amos Abernathy, which I you can't see, but I'm holding in my hands and making jazz hands right now. When I first saw the cover of this book, I was like, oh, this is a kindred spirit. This person gets it. I'll read you the front cover here. It's a story about a middle schooler named Amos Abernathy. He volunteers at the Chicory County Living History Park as a historical reenactor. And a cute new boy named Ben joins the Living History Park as a reenactor. Amos and Ben are trying to figure out their feelings for one another when Amos decides to start a project looking into LGBT figures of the 19th century. He learns about Albert D.J. Cashier, a Union soldier from the Civil War who might have identified as a trans man, it says in Harper Collins, although Amos is more emphatic. Amos is like, yeah, definitely Albert was trans. <laughs> and so Amos starts writing letters to Albert to talk about his feelings, his problems, what's going down with the cute boy Ben from the Living History Park. And it just turns into a wonderful exploration of the things that are shut out of history, the ways that history has been whitewashed and idiosyncrasies and uniqueness has been washed out of history. He has a best friend named Chloe, who is a Black girl who wants to be the first blacksmith apprentice, who is a Black woman at the park, and she goes on her own journey. So it's a wonderful, wide-ranging look at a lot of the history that we cover. And I was like, we got to get Michael on the show. <laughs> I don't have secretaries or assistants, but I was blowing up their phones in my mind being like, we got to get Michael. So very excited to have you, Michael. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for that glowing, warm welcome. I that mean, was a delight. Yeah. Next time you have a low self-esteem day, just... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> dang. I'm going to call you right up. <laughs> so tell me a little more about this book. This is such a specific concept. Did I dream this up? How did you arrive <laughs> at this notion for your debut? It's a great question. When I just graduated from Vermont College of Fine Arts, I really <laughs> wanted to write a new project that was based in many ways on my life. And I thought about some of my particular aspects of my identity that were a little different or unique. And I was a historical reenactor from about fourth until seventh grade. I dressed up in my hat with my haversack. I had a tin cup, my slate, and I'd go from these different stations, a log cabin, a one-room schoolhouse. And I just really loved that experience. And I was homeschooled for quite a bit of my younger years. And the crush character, Ben, is very much so how I grew up in a very conservative Christian household. And as a young gay person, that was pretty challenging. Of course, at that point, I didn't quite acknowledge that. So this story just comes from all the things I was passionate about as a young person, but also this journey into queerness that I didn't get at that age wow. and want to provide for young people today. Yeah. I mean, it's wonderful to read a protagonist like Amos because not only does he have the pride flag on his t-shirt on the cover, we're not hiding anything about what this book mm -hmm. is about, right? But he is like 
five years old. I mean, okay, he's like 12, but he's he's very young. And it's like, yep, I'm gay. I know know this about me. I have enough self-knowledge to not want to look for role models and heroes in history. I have the self-assurance that when someone in my class says something homophobic, I can stand up and deliver a little gender studies lecture to him. I'm I'm good to go. (laughs) I'm wondering, did you ever consider making Ben the protagonist or why was Amos this incredibly self-assured character who was going to be in the driver's seat? Ooh, that's such a good question. I think for me, I didn't want a story about necessarily a coming out experience. I wanted this to be celebratory. I wanted this to be kind of that next step in somebody's journey where they have celebrated their identity. They aren't facing daily homophobia or self-hate, anything like that, and really trying to find their ancestry in their queer roots. And I still wanted to very much so see the two sides of my own past that Where I am today is where Amos is. And I see so many of my students in Amos. This generation is just so far ahead of where I was at that age. And they are self-assured. They have the knowledge. They are openly talking about their identity and their expression and history. And they know things I just didn't know. But I still wanted to acknowledge the Ben character, the person that I was. And that person, that child still exists today. I definitely don't want to make it seem like everything is happy-go-lucky for every young queer kid. That's just not the truth. And so I wanted to show both sides of that, that both of those characters are still very much alive and well today. Yeah, it's interesting. You do a good job of establishing in this town, Amos and his family go to this incredibly progressive church where he can stand up and be like, I'm working on this project for the Living History Park about queer ancestors. And if everyone could pray that it goes well, that's something he can do in his church. And at the same time, when Ben's family clearly knows that this kid from the Living History Park is gay, and when they meet Amos, you describe the looks that come across their face at hearing his name and the way they just shut back down and they invite him to the New Believers Night at their church. So there's this tension even in this very small town, big pockets of acceptance and big pockets also of reactionary fascism. I'll just go ahead and say fascism. (laughs) (laughs) Go for it. Do it. Yeah. And that rang very true to me. I think that's the tension that we're in today. You also, Albert Cashier becomes the figure who he's, Amos's confidant throughout the book. He's a big focus of the story. But you know, you also get into characters like real historical figures like (laughs) Abraham Lincoln, Walt Whitman, there's a section toward the end of the book where the kids are giving a presentation about these characters and they just list names. I am Alphonse Richter. I am Carl Becker. I am Sarah Jewett. I am Mrs. Noonan. I am Emma Stebbins. I am Franklin Thompson. It goes on and on. Who else am I seeing here? Rose Cleveland, Herman Melville. And what I love is, first of all, teach the controversy. You're like, hey, kids, Mm -hmm. did you know that Abraham Lincoln (laughs) probably had a boyfriend? Absolutely. Yeah. But so one figure who isn't here is one Lou Alcott. And I was just wondering, Mm -hmm. (laughs) that's obviously a big focus for me. Did you encounter Alcott at all during what seems like pretty extensive research on 19th historical figures? You know, I don't recall distinctly coming across Louise at Mayalka at all. And that's so weird to me, especially with everything I've learned from you. And I did, I spent hours scouring and looking and I'm just shocked, which that just shows me that even with all of that time and effort spent Mm -hmm. on this project and the years, literal years writing this, that I still missed things, that things are still buried and hidden and kept from us, even when we're looking for it. And 
that just kind of proves why these kinds of stories are so essential because we just need to make this information accessible. Yeah. We need to pull back that veil that it's in hiding or that it's being kept from us. So I'm just, that's why when I saw your article, I was like, oh my God, get out. (laughs) This is so cool. I know. Yeah. You have an entire page of just I am name. And I'm thinking, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. And I can also think of a few names that aren't on here. It's so Mm. extensive. And you would not think that to read some of the reactions from my article about Alcott. It seemed like a common refrain I got was, what woman didn't want to be a man back then, right? It was the 19th century saying, I feel as though I am by some freak of nature, a man's soul in a woman's body. I mean, just girly things, you know? So I'm wondering if you've experienced any of this that same response to your book, or have you been lucky? <laughs> so far, I think I'm still a fairly new entity. And okay. there's been a lot of really kind words said about the book. And of course, there's going to be some haters. But I think the biggest question mark I've gotten is about Abraham Lincoln. And mm, okay. it's it hasn't been too pointed. A lot of people are like, okay, but there's a lot of research done, a lot of evidence here. And I think kind of the way I talk about it in the book and Amos discusses it is that this is a conversation. We're opening up this opportunity for questions and possibility in the past. Now, we're not definitively stating this is how this person identified But there's a whole lot of evidence to say (laughs) there was definitely more going on than we were taught in our textbooks or history classes. And I think just allowing for that space and allowing people to just accept that maybe we don't know the whole story or we weren't taught everything is enough to allow for that queerness into that space. Yeah, I think that's such an important point. And it's something you navigate so elegantly here, the borders between when is it okay And important to say, actually, Abraham Lincoln probably did have sex with men. Albert Cashier was Albert Cashier before and after the Civil War. It wasn't like he put on a soldier's uniform and then took it off. He was Albert for a long time, right? Oh, yeah. So addressing the importance of just being able to name things plainly and also acknowledging that these terms didn't exist back then. And Mm -hmm. thought of gender and sexuality very differently and in some ways may have had more expansive notions of gender and sexuality than we do. I'm wondering, have you gotten feedback on that? How do people respond to your treatment of the label question? So far, everybody's pretty into it. I think that labels can be so affirming and helpful, especially for young queer people who are trying to figure out where they're at are people who are newer in understanding their queerness. But I also think that there's a duality to labels that they can also be limiting, especially I think for people outside of the queer community, they hear a label, they're like, oh, that is the one thing that everyone must be or is. And it becomes the standard by which we have to define ourselves. And that's just really not the spirit of queerness. It's this breadth of possibility and the spectrum of what we can be and who we can be and that's what I love. And that's what I really wanted to show off in this book, that it's not just this these silos of identity, that we are a continuous community of people with all of these unique experiences. And it's better to just talk to the person and get to know each of us individually within this community. Yeah. So, I mean, I will be holding my seance of Walt Whitman, Herman Melville, Abraham Lincoln, the rest of the names. (laughs) (laughs) But (laughs) Perfect. Please invite me. Yeah. If I can figure that out. I I think it's so, you know, because obviously we can't 
speak to anyone. We just have to let them speak through their archives, right? I think we should, we'll now get into the Alcott side of things because one thing that I learned in talking with John Madison, who's a very prominent Alcott scholar, this was from my NYT article, something that he brought up was that Alcott was a transcendentalist and was part of this transcendentalist movement in New England. And, you know, her father was an important transcendentalist. They were friends with Henry David Thoreau and Ralph Waldo Emerson, who were also prominent, you know, figureheads of this movement. And a key tenet of the transcendentalist movement was that the human body is a vessel for the spirit Mm -hmm. and the spirit must be nurtured according to its own unique genius. And so within that spiritual framework, Alcott's frequent description of, okay, I have a female body, but a male spirit. I have a boy's wrath. I have a, you know, a man's soul. <laughs> but mm-hmm. by some nature, it made total sense. It would have been completely contiguous with her worldview and the spiritual worldview of everyone around her, more or less. And that kind of does get flattened when we use even the terms queer or trans. It was like, no, Alcott had a specific spiritual historical framework mm-hmm. for understanding this aspect of their gender, which has kind of gotten lost. And which also gets erased when you say, well, she must have just been a woman who wanted to be a man. No, like it, it went quite a lot deeper than that. Absolutely. It's far more nuanced. It is. I don't know if there's enough language to be able to talk mm-hmm. about all those nuances. Yeah. Another thing that you get out in this book, which is brave for a middle grade book, might I add, is we talk <laughs> about Abraham Lincoln sleeping in the same bed as his bodyguard. And you actually do a bit of historical unpacking. Actually, men kind of did share beds a lot in this time because it was cold and <laughs> just, <laughs> just the logistics of it. Right. Just logistics. It was impractical to sleep in two cold little twin beds when you could be sleeping in one warm big bed. And it didn't necessarily mean anything about the sexualities of the people involved, which I didn't know. And so that was educative for me. And it, I can see how I would that would raise eyebrows for modern readers, but you actually have to be like, no, it was more common. Although even when Abraham Lincoln was president and moved into the White House and, you know, was warm enough at night. He still wanted to have the bodyguard sleep with him. And that's like, mm. I know, right? Eyebrows up. What's going Eyebrows on here? Up. Yeah. So I think on the whole, like, I'm glad that middle grade readers get to have this and it won't just be a shock for them in college. It's like, wait, Emily Dickinson was mm-hmm. a lesbian. No, that's, uh-huh. <laughs> they'll be able to have that knowledge with them from a much younger age, which I think is healthier. I think for all that heterosexual reactionary critics can talk about us projecting, they're projecting right onto historical figures who didn't yes. see or think of themselves or behave that way, right? So terrific book, The Civil War of Amos Abernathy. And we're now going to move into an era of little women where the war is over, wedding mm-hmm. bells are ringing. We're going to get into the meat of the episode. So Michael, let's talk little women. What's your relationship with little women? So I was as I said, homeschooled for much of my childhood. And at that point, with the particular subset of homeschooling culture (laughs) that I was in, we were just obsessed with all things 1800s. And it was really idealized. So I grew up with my mom reading to me all of these books, like Little House on the Prairie, Anna Green Gables, Little Women. And then I was also very limited in the types of things I was able to watch. So from a very early age, I remember watching Little Women. And I remember, like, even more than that, we watched the movie of Little Men. Wow. Repeat. And I have distinct memories watching this. And it was actually a movie we all love. And it was perceived as wholesome and 
it contained the values that we held fast to. And I held on to that for a very long time. I think we still have the VHS somewhere of this movie. And beyond that, I never actually, I think my mom read Little Women to us, but it was the abridged version. I was a little horrified when I went back to the bookstore to get ready for this episode. And I picked up a copy of Little Women. I was like, oh my God, this is a brick. This is not the version that I remember having as a kid. (laughs) But then in high school, I got reintroduced to Little Women because of the musical with Sutton Foster. And I just fell in love with that music and the story all over again. And then, of course, the new movie, The Greta Gerwig, just was lovely. And I watched that in the pandemic with my mom. And it was just such a nice revisiting of a world and characters that are so near and dear to me. Well, I'm so glad that you were able to re-experience that and also open my eyes to the fact that there's a Little Men movie. Dude, yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> it, it's great. I mean, at least I haven't watched it as an adult, but yeah. young me was totally into all of it. Yeah, it looks like there was one in the 1930s and then another one in 19, 1998, which I assume is the one that you saw. Correct. Starring Muriel Hemingway as Joe. What? Okay, this is something <laughs> I am going to need to look into. Roger Ebert gave it one and a half stars. I mean, we'll, we'll have to assess how it's going. Yeah, take it with a grain of salt. I learn something new every day about the Alcott Cinematic Universe on this podcast. <laughs> and so which March sister are you? Keep in mind for the purposes of this podcast, uh, Lori is March sister. I really resonate with Lori. I was always, especially as a young person, wanting to stay inside with my books, but I also felt this loneliness. And I've always gravitated towards being friends with girls and wanting to be in that world. I identify as a cisgender man, but part of my queerness has definitely been exploring my gender expression. And I've always been a theater music loving person. So Lori, totally, but I also have some hints of Meg as the oldest sibling and just... I don't know, some of the sentiments she has as being the oldest and kind of trying to help her siblings find their way and some of the rowdier ones, the Amy and the Joe, you know, but definitely a lot of Lori. Okay. Well, that's good because this is real. I mean, this chapter is Meg's moment. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. It is, but there's more Lori in it than I remembered. So this is a good chapter for you then. Do you want to just give us a recap of what happens in chapter 25, the first wedding? Yeah, absolutely. So we open up with these June roses and this long description about them. There's like a lot of flower imagery in this chapter. And I would love to dig into that a little bit. So (laughs) we open up with watching the sisters take care of Meg and get her ready for her wedding. But she doesn't want anything fancy. She's not about ceremony or anything that is in vogue. And so it's just a very simple affair. And we get to hear them getting ready and Amy being so excited and like, oh my gosh, you're so beautiful. And Joe has a couple of comments about what I love Meg in this moment because she's like, I just love all of you. I don't need this to be perfect. I love this yeah. line. I want a great many crumples and this sort put into my day today. And I just, I just love that moment that yeah. the imperfection is what actually makes her happy. And so then we get into the arrival of guests for the wedding and Lori comes in like a bull in a china shop. He's (laughs) a little obnoxious and I love it. And at March and him have this funny, playful 
moment where mm-hmm. he's sort of encouraged to give her a hard time because he knows that it's going to get to her, but then she's charmed by it. And the actual ceremony is super sweet and there's just no airs about it. And then we get to this really funny moment in the chapter where, of course, it's all about Meg, but Lori kind of takes over the scene where he's like, where's the wine? Let's get the booze out. Let's celebrate. And then he and Meg have this conversation about taking wine when you're in the company of young women and how you shouldn't do that. And she's like, promise me that you will not do this and that you will remain dry for the rest of your life. And he's like, all right, fine. It's your wedding day. And then he this hinting at the future that he's grateful for this for the rest of his life. Yes. And then the chapter closes out with dancing and just this mm-hmm. beautiful scene of celebration and some foreshadowing of moments to come between Lori and Amy and mm-hmm. even sort of a transition in a relationship between Joe and Lori that feels so quick and sudden, but is right there on the page. Yeah. It ends with a beginning with Meg accepting and loving her new life as a married woman. Yeah. It's just a, it's a very, very happy and brief and joyful and unassuming wedding scene. All of Joe's angst at the impending marriage. <laughs> Meg has been pushed to the side for this chapter. Joe is behaving herself. Rather, she's not like BT dubs. Here's my feminist lecture on why this is a capitalist extractionist transaction. Like, just like, <laughs> here I am in my silk and roses, trying not to cry. So let's begin with the flower imagery, which is interesting because as you were mm-hmm. saying, there's a lot of flower imagery here. And I have my almanac ready so we can read the meanings of them. So it says that neither silk, lace, nor orange flowers would she have. And so I think she's referring to like flowers from the orange tree because we learn earlier in the book that Meg grows oranges in the backyard. I'm not sure how that works in the New England climate, but... Okay, amazing. So an orange rose is said to express desire and enthusiasm. And an orange blossom, which I think is the orange tree, which I think is the one that we're looking at means chastity, purity, and loveliness. So it's interesting that Meg is like, I don't want to look chaste and pure today. I mm-hmm. <laughs> this is, I know what John Brooke and I are doing after this wedding. If the dove coat is rocking, don't come and knock in. <laughs> so love that for her. What she does wear is lily of the valley, which means sweetness, tears of the Virgin Mary. I have to assume that's Catholic and they're Protestant. So probably that meaning doesn't enter into it. But humility. So Mm -hmm. she is dressing herself in a flower that literally communicates humbleness. And when Amy says, you look beautiful, I want to hug you, but I don't want to crumple your dress. This is right after we get the Lily of the Valleys thing is when Meg says, I don't care, please hug me, mess my dress up. I want it to be all wrinkled because that means happiness, right? Mm -hmm. It's a real air of humility to the wedding presentation. Aunt March is said to be surprised when she arrives at the house and Meg just comes out to greet her. And she's like, what are you doing? This is your wedding day. Shouldn't you be up like getting, you know, pretty up? So that's the first little bit of that flower imagery. We have blush colored roses, which I take to mean pink. I don't know. Yeah, that's what I would take it as as well. So a pink rose is simply meant to symbolize happiness. This is according to almanac.com, by the way. I mean, please, if we're way off the market, (laughs) send us letters. So it's just to communicate happiness. They have these roses tucked into their hair. Amy is said to be the flower of the family, but we do not know Mm -hmm. precisely which flower she is. 
There are displays of cake and fruit dressed with flowers, though we don't learn what kind. And then we know that Amy has a flower in here that would be big rose again. And then toward the end, this is an interesting thing. So we have gotten specific information about the flowers and their colors and what those flowers would have communicated in Victorian times. But here, toward the end, Grandpa Lawrence said, Lori, my lad, if you ever want to indulge in this sort of thing, get one of those little girls to help you and I shall be perfectly satisfied. I'll do my best to gratify you, sir, was Lori's unusually dutiful reply as he carefully unpinned the posy Joe had put in his button. So now I was curious. I was like, okay, so what does a posy communicate? But I learned something new in reading this chapter, which is that a posy is not, it's not a kind of flower. It's a word for a small bouquet. So all we know is that as Grandpa Lawrence says, you should get one of those little girls to marry you. And he says, I'll do my best. He's unpinning a little bouquet that Joe has put in his buttonhole of his coat. And we can talk about what the Joe putting something in his buttonhole means. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. I'm going back to notes that I wrote two years ago for this. And my margin note just says men get pegged. (laughs) 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 Let's set that aside. So he has this little bouquet. And we have heard about specific flowers. We know that the girls have pink roses in their hair. We know that Meg refused a flower that communicated chastity for one that communicated humility. But we don't know the meaning of this bouquet that Joe gave to Lori. That's Mm -hmm. interesting because it makes me think that maybe Alcott did this by design to make Joe's intentions re-Lori a bit of a mystery. It definitely seems that way, right? Yeah. Because it's weird that we don't get to see her pinning it on him earlier in the chapter. Mm -hmm. Just almost assumed that there's this partnership between them and that they're attending almost as a couple. But we see these hints of, Mm -hmm. no, the flower is Amy. And she's she's aware she's coming in. And so this, he's unlatching himself from this relationship, very literally with Joe mm-hmm. that everyone has come to just expect. And it sort of makes space for a new possibility. And there's yep. just, there's so much hinting in this chapter. I mean, it's even being called mm-hmm. the first wedding. Yep. <laughs> it demands that there must be a second and that, that yeah. Joe is the natural second in this case. Yeah. And that Lori is saying it's not Joe. Well, yeah. I mean, at the very end of the last chapter, he says, mark my words, Joe, you'll go next. But when it's notable that Grandpa Lawrence isn't like, okay, so when are you going to ask Joe to marry you? He says, get one of those little girls to help you, which is, it's it's an odd thing to say. So weird. And he says, I'll do my best to gratify you, sir. And he's unpinning the bouquet that Joe has given him. He's removing it. And you see that as unlatching it. I mean, he's carefully unpinning it. So maybe he intends to preserve it. But Mm. Alcott could have made the choice here to be like, Grandpa Lawrence, well, when are you going to marry Joe? And Lori's like, well, I don't know. I'm waiting for the right moment to propose. But that's not the interaction. Later on, we'll sort of, and I know we'll get into this, but it kind of comes over Lori like a fever, mm. this thing of needing to ask Joe out. And Joe is adamant that it's just not going to happen. So for all the wedding foreshadowing here, again, Amy is the flower of the family. We get a moment of basically Aunt March is rude and maybe racist about Lori. <laughs> To Amy, mm-hmm. to whispers, don't let that young giant come near me. He worries me worse than mosquitoes, whispered the old lady to Amy as Lori's black head towered above the rest. 
and Amy returns, he has promised to be very good today and he can be perfectly elegant if he likes. So we get this, it's not Joe defending Lori to Anne March. It's very much Amy putting her thumb on the scale here and saying, actually, I think he's lovely. You see a lot of Amy and Lori foreshadowing in this chapter, which is interesting. Tons. I mean, even the fact that she calls him Hercules, Mm -hmm. she sees him as the hero Mm -hmm. that he's grown into this very manly figure in her mind from the playmate of Joe and all of them (laughs) from earlier on. Yeah, well, Amy is still young in this chapter. We still have a sense of her growing into her womanhood, but we have a sense of there's something budding. Right. She is the flower. She's growing up. And it's occurring to me now, I actually missed a little bit of floral imagery, which is Aunt March takes the seat of honor and settles the folds of her lavender moire. And Mm. do you want to know what lavender communicates? Distrust. (laughs) Oh, snap. (laughs) Oh, no. None of this is a coincidence. (laughs) No, absolutely not. Very intentional. Yep. Dang. I want to kind of go back for just a second, too, because I think... It's really interesting with all the Rose imagery with Meg that she's very intentionally doing what John wants for her. And despite all this, the white imagery, it even gets to the point where during, I think it's during the ceremony, during the next 15 minutes, she looked more like a Rose than ever, where everyone availed themselves of their privileges to the fullest extent. And I think it's really interesting that even despite putting all this whiteness and this like purity and innocence yeah. around her and the chasteness, mm-hmm. that she's blushing red in this moment. She's filled yeah. with passion and mm-hmm. that sort of juxtaposition of her desire and what she wants internally and her expression mm-hmm. of that love, which... Yeah. Also, it seems like a model as mm-hmm. the eldest sibling and the first to do this seems so odd to me that Joe doesn't actually have more to say about her oldest sister conforming to the needs of and wants of her husband. Yeah. Joe has really said her piece prior to this, right? Joe has made her feelings clear. At this point, I wanted to get out. I don't usually do this, but I wanted to get out. the. I have the letters, the selected letters of Louise May Alcott. This is the Meyerson Sheely edition. and. I have here, I wanted to read some of what Alcott actually said about the real life Meg Anna Alcott's wedding. So this is a letter to Alfred Whitman, who was Alfie, one of the inspirations for Lori. She writes, Annie and John may be married in June, so we are full of work and I am full of woe. For I think it's a very trying thing to have men come and fetch away a body's relations in this sort of way. And she moves on from that pretty quickly. But she, you know, she's like, I am full of woe, Alfie, this sucks ass. (laughs) And in a letter to Anna after the wedding, she writes, this is, she's just writing to her newly married sister. After the bridal train had departed, the mourners withdrew to their respective homes and the bereaved family solaced their woe by washing dishes for two hours and bolting the remains of the funeral baked meats. Oh my God. (laughs) No, congrats, sis. Hope you and the husband are settling down while she's like, well, breaking out the sackcloth. We're going to be mourning. She's talking about the wedding feast. She's like the funeral baked meats. <laughs> Jesus Christ. And that's the letters. That's to other people, which I mean, that's also like a wild thing to say to your newly married sister. But if we get into like, now I have the journals, which also Myers and Sheely, which is her journal entry after the wedding. Okay. And so just enjoy this. Saw Anna's honeymoon home at Chelsea, a little college in a blooming apple orchard. Pretty place, simple and sweet. God bless it. The dear girl was married on the 23rd, the same day as mother's wedding. A lovely day, the house full of sunshine, flowers, friends, and happiness. 
Uncle S.J. May married them with no fuss, but much love. And we all stood around her. She in her silver gray silk with lilies of the valley, John's flower in her bosom and hair. We in gray thin stuff and roses, sackcloth, I called it, and ashes of roses, for I mourn the loss of my nan and am not comforted. Oh, my God. <laughs> we have had a little feast sent by good Mrs. Judge Shaw. Then the old folks dance round the bridal pair on the lawn in the German fashion, making a pretty picture to remember under our revolutionary elm. Then with tears and kisses, our dear girl in her little white bonnet went happily away with her good John, and we ended our first wedding. Mr. Emerson kissed her. She's talking about Ralph Waldo. And I thought that honor would make even matrimony endurable for he is the God of my idolatry and it's been for years. So even she's like, well, I am obsessed with Emerson and he kissed her on the cheek or he kissed her. He doesn't say where, but she's like, I think that would be pretty dope to be kissed by Emerson. <laughs> so that's the entire reflection on her wedding. Gray, thin stuff and roses, sackcloth, ashes of roses. I mourn the loss of my nan and I'm not comfortable. And then the next month she writes, saw nan in her nest where she and her mate live like a pair of turtle bulbs. Very sweet and pretty, but I'd rather be a free spinster and paddle my own canoe. So that's where that famous quote comes from. It's her reflecting on just how once she's moved past the funeral imagery, <laughs> there's some self-conscious jokiness there. I can't imagine. Yeah. She doesn't have reservations of marriage and like, I don't like your husband. I think this you're making a mistake here. She's just like, I'm sad and messed up and this sucks. This is, I'm mourning this. I'm grieving this. Well, this community that she's clung to yeah. her entire life, having this fellowship of sisterhood is being torn from her. And this is only yeah. the beginning of the end because yeah. there's still herself and Amy and Beth. And yeah. as much as Meg tries to reassure mm-hmm. all of them and Marmy that my love for John does not diminish my love for all of you at all. And I will be right. with you. I'm going to see Beth every day. Yeah. It's still not the same. This is no. still an entirely new path. Yeah. And that's just heartbreaking. And I get it. No, it's the dissolution of the only home she's ever known. And it's interesting. She kind of frames, I'm going to read one more. Of course, I just put the bookmark away. I wanted to read one more kind of preceding the month before Anna's wedding. (laughs) She she was in an omnibus, which was a carriage that multiple people rode in. Or maybe this was a train. She said, had a funny lover who met me in the cars and said he lost his heart at once. Handsome man of 40, a Southerner, and very demonstrative and gushing, called and wished to pay his addresses, and being told I didn't wish to see him retired to write letters and haunt the road with his hat off while the girls laughed and had great fun over Joe's lover. He went at last and peace reigned. My adorers are all queer. She had a suitor. <laughs> and she was like, isn't oh this gosh. the most bizarre thing in the world? What's interesting to me here is this is 1860. This is eight years before Little Women. But she's saying the girls laughed and had great fun over Joe's lover. Mm-hmm. She's already thinking of herself in the third person as Joe. Right. Which so is- interesting. <laughs> so in the span of a few months from April to June in this stretch of diary, she's like, it's so funny and stupid that a man was attracted to me. Can you believe it? And then I'm devastated that my sister is getting married. And then I'd rather be a free spinster and paddle my own. So she is quite decided about her own attitude toward marriage at this point in her life. It's not positive, but no, it's a pretty well-mannered wedding scene, right? We've gotten kind of Joe's skepticism and anger about marriage out before this. And now it's a happy day. It's lovely. There's sunshine and flowers. Do you detect any bleakness, any of that funeral tone that Alcott is talking about in here? Or do you think she puts that off pretty effectively? I'm curious about all of the different layers that are in it, but at one point it she says, Joe did, and italicized, not cry. Joe did not cry 
Though yeah. she was very near at once and was only saved from a demonstration by the consciousness that Lori yeah. was staring fixedly at her. And I feel like although she was, that was her natural inclination to yeah. mourn this, she chose not to. And there were so many other distractions. And I love that Lori is yeah. at the center of that. This really wasn't about her in this moment. She was really yeah. able to say, this is about what my sister wants, not what I need or want. Yeah. I, and I think we see that in the Alcott letters as well a certain putting aside of her own emotions to just like she's like i'm not happy about this but i will be there for her i will visit her new place obviously she and john are getting along very happily she can kind of grudgingly (laughs) accept that this is something her sister wants but here when it says joe did not cry we know from earlier in the book that joe kind of associates being able to control one's emotions with manfulness. She sits in the back when they read the letter from father so that no one will see her cry. It's a gender expression thing for her. She has some, an idea that being masculine or being manly means not crying. And we can talk to Joe about what that means. Uh-huh, right, <laughs> that, that toxic masculinity, great. <laughs> Love that stoicism for her. Even as Laurie is staring at her, as you said, with a comical mixture of merriment and emotion in his wicked black eyes. So some of this is he wants to catch Joe cry and be like, ha ha, you felt something. But he's obviously moved himself. And thinking about weddings enough that when Grandpa Lauren says, oh, Lori, when are you going to get married? His reply is unusually dutiful. And I'll do my best to gratify you. And isn't it interesting that it's the two of them that are making eye contact during the ceremony? I feel like yeah. that's, there's so much happening there that is unspoken yeah. in this moment. Not eye contact. Joe is conscious that Lori is staring fixedly mm, at him. You're right. They're not looking into one another's eyes. She just knows that he's looking at her. She's thinking about his eyes on her, which is almost even more telling. Right. She can't meet his gaze. They have this closed circuit in this very crowded room, which is interesting. Another indicator of Joe not feeling the wedding is Lori. There's a crash, a cry, and a laugh from Lori, accompanied by the indecorous exclamation, Jupiter Ammon, Joe's upset the cake again. And it's not intentional, but of course, Joe's like knocking over the wedding cake and screwing things up, right? Right. Even on a subconscious level, she's like, I just, I can't do it in this space. I don't know what's happening. Right. And then later on, Lori's like, did Joe smash all the bottles by accident? Like, did she mess up the wedding? Because there was wedding wine. Grandpa Lawrence sent over some wine. Aunt March sent over some wine. And then in the name of temperance, father put a little away for Beth because wine was sort of seen as medicine back then and dispatched the rest of the soldiers home. You know he thinks that wine should only be used in illness. And mother says that neither she nor her daughters will ever offer it to any young man under her own roof. So that's interesting is this thing that is that at least Grandpa Lawrence and Aunt March see as like central to a wedding celebration is being the initial joke is did Joe just destroy it all by accident? And then it leads into this very pious little sermon about like, Lori, let's have a talk about your sobriety. Right. And I don't know, Is have there been other moments up to this point where he's off gallivanting and making a fool of himself? So, no, but there is a moment earlier on where Joe is distraught and Lori offers her wine and she drinks the wine and is so moved that she throws herself around Lori and embraces him and he kisses her. And then she pulls away and is like, okay, enough of that. And there's another little aside about and this is why you should not drink wine. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's just so moralistic. And it feels like, oh, why yeah. is this the focus suddenly mm-hmm. in this celebratory chapter about mm-hmm. love that we have to say, and don't drink. That is the moral children. Yeah. Well, I think the why is plain enough. I think Alcott yeah. did the temperance movement 
at this point in history, and I mean, I'm kind of speaking off the cuff here. This is not my area of expertise, but it was a women's movement. It was because men would get drunk and abuse their wives and spend all their money. And women had it and were like, let's try to get men to stop abusing us when they're drunk. That was the root of the temperance. Obviously, it was steeped in Christianity. It was a religious movement as well. But in a very meaningful sense, it was a domestic a movement against domestic violence. It was a movement. If you look at it as men get drunk, they abuse women, they get into scrapes, they bet all their money away, even a movement for like a degree of economic autonomy because- yeah. You have this abusive ne'er-do-well husband who spends all your money and he's a drunk. It's easy now to look at this as so much finger wagging, but I think there's a degree of seriousness here that underscores that as we are moving into marriage and matrimony and homemaking, we want to say, you know what? You can have a happy home and a happy marriage with no alcohol in it at all. And it's not John Brooke needing to be given that lecture at this moment. <laughs> I don't know, maybe that would be a little too bleak, but it's Lori, who's kind of yeah. the next in line being told, you know, it's a good idea to be sober. So that is interesting to me. It takes up a good chunk of the chapter's real estate. <laughs> it does. It just yeah. took me by surprise when I was reading it. Yeah. And then Joe is happy and it says baptizes him with a splash of lemonade because she's so delighted that he's pledged to be sober. <laughs> I thought that was she's, a fun moment. Yeah. At the very end of the first volume of Little Women, we have this moment where Joe is upset that Meg and John Brooke are engaged, and she and Lori vow to be best friends for the rest of their lives. And Lori says, I will stand by you all my life. On my honor, I will. And they discuss maybe eventually when he gets back from college, maybe they'll go on a trip or something. They're making plans for their future and making a commitment to one another that is not romantic or sexual which is interesting. And it's in parallel with John and Meg's very romantic, very heteronormative pairing up here. It's interesting to me. Right. Building their house, building their life together. And it's interesting that there's space in this time because of their ages to dream and plan in that way. And of course, we know how the story ends. Yeah. But being given that freedom to dream, I think there's such hope in that mm-hmm. moment. And I love that there's a playful beat yes. for them. And I think that's something that I was certainly attracted to and experienced as a yeah. young person in my relationships with women. Cause I was like, I'm never going to marry a woman. <laughs> yeah. I have these lifelong commitments to people. And I remember saying things in high school, like, well, if we're both single by 40, we will get together. Right. And that kind of yeah. feels like this moment for Lori and Joe. And then life does take its twists and turns for both of them. Yeah. You know, I, I'm going to hop, I'm going to do the grievous thing here and hop ahead to the chapter where Joe and Lori, sorry, where Lori does propose to Joe and things go downhill because this stuck out to me on a recent reread. And I want to, I think it is worth talking about in the context of the discussion we're having now, of if we're both single and we're 40 type thing. So Joe says, you know, it's impossible for people to make themselves love other people if they don't. And Lori says they do sometimes. And Joe says, I don't believe it's the right sort of love and I'd rather not try, which is interesting to me because under what circumstances would people make themselves love one another? And I'm reaching here, but I couldn't help but think of that in the context of lavender marriages, people who are queer and who homemake, even knowing that this is not going to be a traditional marriage. It's not going to be a marriage that produces children. And I wonder if there was a seed of that in that statement about Sometimes people make themselves love one another and 
Joe's like, I think that's a good idea. I don't want to try that. Right. That she's just not capable of bringing herself to that. And then she yeah. doesn't say that she doesn't love him. She just doesn't mm-hmm. love him romantically in that, yeah. in that way that is enough to build that marriage. And even, even a lavender marriage, which I think is yeah. really interesting that they potentially mm-hmm. could have had a life where they were both fulfilled and maybe even getting what they need in other ways. Yeah. But it wasn't here. It wasn't that. No, I genuinely, I go back to like, this was in the last chapter, Lori brings friends home from college and they're all boys and they all are obsessed with Joe. And they're like, Joe is the coolest. She's the best. We all want to be Joe's friend, but none of them ever fall in love with her. And it reads to me as such wishful fulfillment. <laughs> Alcott being like, oh my God, can you believe all these boys just want to be Joe's friend and aren't interested in her sexually? <laughs> I, <laughs> right. It's just this utopia being able to get along with the boys. Yeah. And be one of them without the complications <laughs> of having to deny somebody, yep. having to put someone away or down or say, nope, no, that is yeah. not what this is. Exactly. In in that first dance scene where Joe meets Lori, there's a group of boys talking about hockey and she wants to go over and talk about hockey with them, but Meg won't let her do it. And then when a boy asks her to dance or looks like he's about to engage her, Joe runs off. She's like, I want proximity to boys. Not like that. I'm very clear about what I want. That's a through line through the whole book. And it's less present here because Joe, I guess, is behaving herself on Meg's wedding day. But Joe is not, she just doesn't want to get married, period. Right? There's Alcott at the time of this wedding said, I want to be a free spinster and paddle my own canoe. That's what I would prefer. And we don't get a similar statement in this chapter from Joe. But I think we can feel it. Absolutely. Well, and it's interesting because what you read earlier reminded me of there's a line at the journal and here in the book, in the novel, are almost verbatim word for word. She says, or I think this is Lori getting everybody to dance, all the married people take hands and dance round the new made husband and wife as the Germans do while we yeah. bachelors and spinsters prance in couples outside. And yeah. it's coming through Lori. Yeah. And, he, and then he gallops. And this is so interesting, too. I've heard you talk mm-hmm. about the horse and yeah. what that meant to Lou. And that in this moment, it's Lori galloping down the path with Amy with such infectious spirit and skill that everyone else yeah. followed their example without a murmur. That just yeah. speaks so much. But I think it's so nuanced because we know so much about Lou that you helped mm-hmm. bring to light that yeah. I'm just like, what is she really trying to show us here about Joe what, and what Lou, yeah. what they're both experiencing, yeah, but through the vessels of these other characters. Yeah, because Lori, he's also a gender non-conforming figure in many ways. The sad thing about little women is that's going to get sort of, you know, these characters are kind of all marching toward heterosexual marriage, ultimately, which is mm-hmm. a problem. In this moment, as you said, Lori is galloping down the path. Joe is certainly also known to gallop. And when Alcott uttered that, you know, immortal quote about feeling a man's soul in a woman's body. It was preceded by, I think, her observing, she think like, I think I must have been a horse in a past. Like, as a child, I just loved to run through the field and lift my head to sniff the morning air. And here in this moment of strict gender conformity, it's Lori's galloping. He has that spirit and he's saying, we bachelors and spinsters will prance in couples outside. And so spinster is language that Alcott used. She said, I want to be a free spinster. Bachelor is loaded language. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I'm going to have to do some digging here on, so I apologize for any delays, but when do we think bachelor came to assume the double meaning, right? Because it is- That's a good question. A confirmed bachelor 
is sort of an eyebrow going up. And obviously, even today, you can say, oh, that person's a bachelor. There's a very heterosexual show called The Bachelor, right? Right. But it is. You're right. There's layers of language here. Yeah. When did it acquire that double meaning is what I want to know. Wikipedia, Wiktionary is no help at all. It's telling me that a bachelor is a kind of freshwater fish. Rude. This is not helpful, Wikipedia. Yes. Okay. He never married was a phrase used by British obituary writers as a euphemism for the deceased having been homosexual. This is Wikipedia. Its use has been dated to the second half of the 20th century. So that's post this. A similar phrase, confirmed bachelor, was used in the second half of the 20th century by the satirical magazine Private Eye as one of its euphemisms and in-jokes. So that is a euphemism that very much arose post this time, unfortunately. So if anyone knows when bachelor first kind of became queer coded or homophobic language might be. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. I didn't realize that like starting obituaries. Oh my God. Well, the confirmed bachelor was not from obituaries. The phrase he never married was. It was like oh, a, you're right. Okay. Confirmed bachelor kind of arose in tabloids in the second half of the 20th century. This, you know, this is kind of like film. It would be like such and such a film star is a confirmed bachelor. I all know what that means, but it's unclear about when Laurie says us bachelors and spinsters. Would that have been loaded at the time that he said it as he's galloping down the path with Amy? Because I don't think he's calling Amy a lesbian. No, I don't get that either. She's, but it's interesting that even though she's not quite eligible to be married yet, no. she's still in that category. Yeah. So he forces her into it even playfully. Yeah. That he takes that on. And we know that May Alcott, the real life Amy, love to flirt and like this is something that gives me great joy i love flirting i love being flirted with i love to just be surrounded by men and that's <laughs> she's talking about how oh it's so cool that lou is having books published i wish i had talent for anything but flirting it was a proficiency it was <laughs> she was good at so does amy object to being called a spinster is there knowledge that amy the blooming flower is like why am i not the one to get married next and in fact she is <laughs> right, right. And it just seems so interesting. And it doesn't seem like because Lori just has such a magnetic personality that he's able to get everyone else to yes. buy into the joyousness of this. And it's also like a joke because even a little bit later on, but the crowning joke was Mr. Lawrence and Aunt March and the two of them dancing that all of this, there's such an era of play yeah. that I don't think, yeah, it doesn't seem like anybody's offended, but because it comes from Lori. Right. Yeah. And Mr. Lawrence and Aunt March are a bachelor and a spinster because their spouses have passed away. Right. Right. That was a fun shock. We learned that there was an Uncle March at one point early on in the book. And Joe oh was with him and he let Joe play with the books in his library. So in the recent adaptation of Little Women, Uncle March is sort of written out and Aunt March is like, I'm allowed to be single because I'm rich. But that was our March is just a widow here. And then Mr. Lawrence also had a wife and children and now is a single man. But, it, you know, it's a joke that they're a bachelor and a spinster and they get to join in the same circle as Lori and Amy. Right. That it crosses these generations and that it's a, something that can happen around <laughs> marriage, pre and post, which is so interesting. <laughs> now, there's sort of one last little thing I want to touch. We've talked a lot about kind of the description of Amy being the flower of the family and, you know, this whole paragraph being devoted to like her charms and how lovely she looks and you know, her wonderfully fair complexion, keen, you know, we get a lot about how Amy is a hot girl, her hot girl summer, (laughs) her springtime, rather. Joe's angles are much softened. She has learned to carry herself with ease, if not grace. The curly crop has been lengthened into a thick coil. 
more becoming to the small head atop the tall figure. There is fresh color in her brown cheeks, a soft shine in her eyes. Only gentle words fall from her sharp tongue today. So there's a thing of Joe being softened by the passage of time and also by the day. And, and I don't love this. I mean, it's sad to read about Joe's angles being softened and her sharp tongue being sort of blunted because that, that's what we love about Joe, right? It's, right. It's a bummer. Her short hair has grown out and it's becoming to her. She, you know, she's still, there's still fresh color in her brown cheeks. So she's still going outside and getting the sun, which is unladylike. But the gender conformity, it's, it's a far cry from the, go back and read this in concert with the opening chapter of this book. Joe has been feminized by time. Right. Yeah. And I don't get the sense that she wants it, that it's just no. sort of this because of the society that she's forced into this. And it's terrible. And it's not at all what we know she wants or needs. I'm a little surprised that it feels like she isn't fighting back against it. And I don't, I can't really tell if it's just happening in this moment because it's yeah. not her time to do it because it's so focused on Meg and what Meg yeah. wants for her marriage and her wedding day. But it is, it's that even in that, in this joyous celebratory moment that she doesn't get to be exactly who she wants, even though all of her sisters know exactly who she is. Yeah, no, it's, we certainly see her fighting against it in the prior chapter at the end of the first book. In the next chapter, sorry, eventually as we move forward, she, you know, she will refuse Lori's proposal and assert herself. And we're not too far, actually. We're only mm -hmm. a couple of chapters from her publishing her first novel. She's going to go to New York. She's going to live alone in the city, right? So she will have a different path from the other girls. But here, oh, she's softened. And look at the color in her cheeks and the gentle words on her lips. I don't like this. <laughs> no, do you think it's Lou? trying to give the readers at this point like well maybe there's a possibility and then she just snatches it away and is like nope just kidding that is not the path for joe <laughs> yeah i i know that she we've talked before in the show she was like i cannot wait to get the hate mail when joe and laurie don't get married bring it on it's not gonna happen so i think there could be a little bit of trolling here but this isn't even specific we do get that thing of like joe knew that laurie's eyes were on her and she didn't cry but in this little thing, there's not any talk of Lori or marriage. It's just she's soft mm -hmm. and her hair is longer. But then also equally, Beth has grown slender, pale, and more quiet than ever. Her eyes are larger. There's an expression that saddens one, although it is not sad itself. It is the shadow of pain which touches the young face with such pathetic patience. But Beth seldom complains and always speaks hopefully of being better soon. Beth is otherwise just not mentioned in this chapter, except that we learned that some of the wine is set aside for Beth. So at this point, Beth is a disabled person in this narrative. Yeah. Right. Beth is chronically ill. She's trying to bear it, but everyone who looks at her can know, okay, she's lost weight. Her complexion is more pale. We can see in her eyes that she's in pain and that's mm -hmm. sad. It is kind of the bleakest note in the chapter and it comes and goes very quickly. And then we just do not think about Beth at all. <laughs> Right. No, barely, right? Hardly at all. I think there, the one yeah. other mention I found is when she hides her face in her mother's shoulder during the actual ceremony and even that, yeah. the act of hiding. And that, honestly, it even feels like when she says that being better soon, she's yeah. denying the inevitability of what's to come and she knows it, but she just puts on mm -hmm. this brave face and for maybe a little bit sick of herself, but for other people as well, that it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. Even in this happy moment, she's hiding away from it. Yeah. And so I, it occurred to me that there was maybe an obvious explanation for Beth being so absent 
from this wedding scene. And I looked it up and yeah, the real life Elizabeth Alcott passed away two years before Anna's wedding. So in mm. real life, Beth was not here. Beth was not at the wedding. And for what it, for dramatic purposes, maybe Alcott hadn't figured out yet what she was going to do with Beth. Maybe she knew that Beth was going to pass away in this half of the book. It just, maybe it hurt too much to write Beth into a scene that she wasn't alive to see. But, you know, it's, it's sad all, all the same. What do you think here about just Beth's presence here as a, as a disabled person in a scene where everyone else is otherwise a rude health and looking ahead to the future? Like, what does this do for the chapter? I feel like it keeps it... For all the merriment, it almost keeps it grounded in reality that for as happy as we are, the world around us is not perfect. And the harsh truths of our existence aren't gone. Mm -hmm. We might have put them on pause for this, which we're able to do right throughout life, even just thinking about the greater meaning of this moment that there are these bright spots of joy, but we still hold with us those difficult memories. And even thinking about the fact that the actual sister, she passed before this wedding, that we get to hold the memory of someone, even thinking of her as like a narrative ghost in this moment that she was able to bring her sister into this very joyous occasion in a way that was subtle and soft and still honoring the pain that she went through. She's not speaking, She's not, but she's sort of around the edges. She's hiding her face behind Marmion. Mm-hmm. And it seems that that's giving her a little bit of presence in the wedding, which like must have been felt as well in the real wedding. We know that Beth would be so happy to be here today. And it's the chapter closes as Meg is leaving for her new home. And she says, don't feel that I'm separated from you. Beth is going to be with me a great deal. And there's a note of sadness for us because we know what comes for Beth. Like Beth actually isn't going to be with you that much longer, right? And it's, you know, it is this note of sadness in this otherwise joyous moment, right? Which I think, as you said, it keeps the chapter grounded. It foreshadows, you know, some of the difficulties that are to come. It keeps this from being a completely airy-fairy departure from reality. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And it's interesting that weight doesn't come from Joe's own inner turmoil, but from Beth. And it's interesting, in all of the dancing, we get mention of so many people dancing, there's yeah, no yeah. mention of Beth at all. Yeah. Even Sally Moffat gets a mention, but no Beth. Yeah. Beth probably doesn't have the strength to dance, right? There's talk of after the dancing, want of breath brought the impromptu ball to a close. This is vigorous exercise and Beth didn't have it in her, certainly. Well, it is sad to contemplate that. It's interesting that the way that the writing of this book shook out, she had to, the fictional Elizabeth was not yet gone. So Alcott had to write her into a scene that she hadn't been present for, which is interesting to me. But let's leave it off. You know, John and Meg are watching with faces full of love and tender pride and hope. Sorry, Meg is walking away, leaning on her husband's arm. Her hands are full of flowers. The June sunshine is brightening her happy face. Meg's married life began, and she is not wearing the flowers that symbolize purity and chastity. She is about to get it on. Leave on uh-huh. that. Congratulations, Meg. (laughs) (laughs) Happy wedding night. (laughs) Happy wedding night. (laughs) All right. That's about all I had to say. Michael, any parting thoughts before we head out? No, this was a joy. It was so much fun to get nerdy and talk about books and the 1800s. Yes. No, it's obviously a point of passion for you. The Civil War of Amos Abernathy is available wherever fine books are sold. You can get it on in print or an audiobook. I can vouch for the audiobook being very good. Where else can people find you online? Michael. 
on social media, Twitter, Instagram, at Michael Lee Alley. And I have a website, michaelleealley.com. And actually, I've got my second novel, Mateo, coming out on May 23rd of this year. And I'm super excited. That's fabulous. May 23rd. And I think you were saying it's already, people can already get the arc. They can already check it out. The top Absolutely. thing. Yeah. It showed up as reader recommended on NetGalley the other day, which is pretty cool. There are some really lovely reviews already. So absolutely request an eGalley on Edelweiss or NetGalley. I'm, I'm pretty pumped about my sophomore middle grade. So now what's Mateo about? I mean, you have to tell us. Sure. It is a very loose retelling, more inspired by Pinocchio. And it is the story of Matteo Lorenzini, who <laughs> is adopted and never feels like he's quite boy enough or good enough for the friends in his life, for the expectations of his parents. And when puberty hits, alongside everything else, he starts to discover that when he's a little less honest with himself or others, he starts sprouting twigs and growing bark. And what unravels is this mystery in his community, in his family that he has to solve with his best friend Azura and his sort of ex-friend, maybe future friend, maybe kind of crush, Omar. And there's a lot of baseball. There's a lot of hunting for clues some ghost characters. It's light on fantasy and heavy on mystery. That sounds so special. I'm so excited to check that out, Michael. Thank you. I'm pretty pumped about it. All right. So Amos Abernathy is already in stores. Mateo will be in in May. So get those pre-orders in. And I, as always, am Peyton Thomas. You can buy my book, Both Sides Now, wherever fine books are sold. You can also leave us a little rating review wherever you get your podcasts. And you can now find us on Instagram at Joe's Boys Pod. I'll be sharing updates about future upcoming episodes and guests. Our next episode is a scrap bag episode with Anna Todd, the author of the After series. We're going to be talking about her book, The Spring Girls, which I thought was a very gutsy, confident little women retelling, very Meg-centric. So if you enjoyed this chapter, you'll enjoy that as well. And you can look out for that. All right. Well, thank you so much, Michael. It's been lovely. Thank you so much. It's been the best. What a fun way to spend the day. 